Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks, Assistant Director at the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi, everyone. And child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, Dr. Al Atkins. Hi, Al. Hey, everybody. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR School of Medicine. Let's Get Psyched is not intended to replace mental health assessment and treatment. The information shared on the show is for educational purposes only. Well, on this episode of Let's Get Psyched, we're going to talk about clinical interviewing strategies, part two. And to do that, we're honored once again to have with us Dr. Sean Christopher Shea. Dr. Shea is the founder and director of the Training Institute for Suicide Assessment and Clinical Interviewing. He's a widely respected innovator in the fields of suicide prevention and clinical interviewing. He's the author of seven books and numerous articles, including The Practical Art of Suicide Assessment and the textbook Psychiatric Interviewing, The Art of Understanding, now in its third edition. It was selected by the British Medical Association as the 2017 first prize book of the year in psychiatry. Sean, thank you for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. I have a question. I want to actually get to techniques. Okay. Uh, yeah, we in, didn't really get there. Yeah. In the medication interest model, in the MIM, um, some of the techniques you talk to me about are um, charging the talisman. You, I can give you three. Yes. Great. Yeah. Okay. So in step two, which is that uh, the person's decided there's something wrong, uh, so the next thing they have to believe is that a medication is a reasonable route to get relief from what they want relief from. Uh, and preferably, they think it's the primary best way uh, to do it. Uh, that will motivate them. Um, so uh, one technique, by the way, uh, one of the things about training people in interviewing is the idea of conceptualizing, the, uh, working from a principle, then moving to techniques, and then two or more techniques become an interviewing strategy. Um, so, you know, a principle might be, for instance, um, if you're going to raise a sensitive topic, uh, be sure to, uh, try to help the patient feel safe to do so. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great principle. I, who would disagree with that? I mean, I don't know why you would disagree. That's a great print. And that is often what is taught. That's what I was taught, but no one turned to me and said, oh, here's two techniques that will allow you to do that. Right, yeah. One's called normalization. You'd turn to the person, you'd say, sometimes when people feel as depressed as you do, they find themselves having thoughts of killing themselves. Have you been having any thoughts like that? That's making it safe to do because you're telling them other people do it. Another Mm -hmm. one's called shame attenuation. That's same with everything you've been going through if you've been having any thoughts of killing yourself. Those are two different techniques. I won't go into right now why one works with some people better than another, and I truly believe that, Uh, but that's not about the meme that you asked about. But so techniques, for techniques to work, and techniques allow the clinician to be flexible and intentional. And that's that's the name of the game. Um, Because if I know that there's a seven blade or an eight blade, as we were talking about, I know there's I can make a conscious decision. I'm going to use shame attenuation. I'm going to use normalization. And here's why. Um, And so we can take our interviewing to that level. So, for instance, in trying to motivate patients on step two, step two is mainly a motivational step. You know, I think a medicine will help me to get relief and I want to take it. Here's a technique. You always name the technique. 
They, it needs the name because it allows it to be distinct. It's the seven blade or the eight blade. Uh, if you don't have a name, it makes it very difficult to intentionally use it. So everyone, every tech, interviewing technique in our literature, the field of clinical interview, that's what a technique has a name. Uh, it has a structure and specific wording, and you have to show the person the wording. Uh, so this one's called the inquiry into lost dreams. And it was taught to me by a pediatrician, actually. And um, we were talking about this step in one of my talks. And I often, you know, have interactions with the audience. He said, hey, I can give you a good example of this. And he said, uh, I'm a pediatrician. I specialize in childhood asthma. And he said, you know, getting these kids to take these meds, to use inhalers, this is going to be difficult. He says, if the kid has, a, you know, strikingly acute asthma, asthmatic attacks where he thinks he's going to die, I don't have, those kids are motivated to, to do what we, he says, but many of them aren't. Okay. They don't have that. Oh, uh, but, and so it could be hard to get them to take these. It's embarrassing to use an inhaler in front of other kids. Um, and he said, so I'll ask these kids the first time I've met them, after I've taken their history and tried to engage them, are say, is there anything your asthma is stopping you from doing that you really, really wished you could do again? Uh, and we called that the inquiry into lost dreams. Uh, and mm -hmm. he said the most common thing for kids was a sport. And he said, so if the kid says, so I used to be first string on, uh, in our soccer team. And he goes, goes well, and he said, then there's a second part to the inquiry into lost dreams. Uh, and that is you then turn to that kid and you say, you know, Jim, I can't promise you I can get you back out on the soccer field, but I think that's a great goal for us. Uh, and I have a couple medications that I'd like to suggest to you that I think might help you to do that. And I've gotten kids back out into sports. Uh, once again, I can't promise it. But I can promise you I'll do everything I can to help you do that. Uh, and I'm just wondering, do you think that is a good a good goal for us? This guy is a brilliant interviewer because the last part's wonderful because what he did is he took this adolescent and he did what every adolescent wants to do, tell an adult what they want done. So he literally said, is it okay for us to set this as a goal? He's a brilliant interviewer. But anyway, I took that away. We call that the inquiry into lost dreams that can be used. To, is there anything your OCD is stopping you from doing that you really, really wished you could do? Is there anything, uh, say it's a patient who's in remission of schizophrenia. You say, is there anything your schizophrenia is stopping you from doing, Jim, that you, you really, really wished you could do? Uh, and it's fascinating to see what people say uh, with schizophrenia. And it's often not what I was thinking uh, mm. would be the, their goal. Um, and that can even change treatment treatment directions. It right. could be, you know, uh, my voices were problematic, but I tell you, I just don't have the energy to even take a, a, a class and I would like to go back to, to school again. Well, you know what? You might move towards an antipsychotic that uh, helps with um, negative symptoms of schizophrenia, or maybe that is a depression, a reactive depression to a schizophrenia. Maybe you need to treat as depression. But so that's a great question. Um, another one. Um, the third thing was weighing the pros and cons. Weighing the pros and cons has three components to it: uh, efficacy, and I don't mean uh, how you and I would mean it. Well, you know, in medicine, uh, we mean efficacy is uh, how it works in the lab, essentially, or on an inpatient unit. Effectiveness is how it works in the real world, and there's often a big difference between. I mean, from the patient's view, e efficacy is very simple. Does this make me feel better? 
<laughs> right. They're not making yeah. a distinction between efficacy and effectiveness. Um, that's a question. The second thing is, and when they're weighing the pros and cons, and that, uh, by the way, that's symptom relief versus side effects. By the way, a really interesting thing I like to emphasize to um, anybody who's prescribing or following people with meds is really understanding that, you know, what in essence is a side effect? Well, a side effect is a disease. That's what we're doing. We're we're trading diseases for this person. We're saying, you got this disease. I'm going to give you this medicine. It's going to cause these side effects. Side effects, by definition, if you look at them, they are pathophysiology. In other words, this is not the way the, the human body is supposed to work. It's a disease. Hopefully, it's a very small disease. But I don't talk to patients like that and say, you know, it's a disease. But I think it's important for the prescriber to realize side effects are a big deal. And to the patient, they're a major big deal on this pros and cons list. And the side effect always has to be considered of what does it mean to that particular person? You know, for us in psychiatry, now we don't use quite as many anticholinergic things as we used to, uh, but we still do. Um, but the, the bottom line is a dry mouth. I used to, to find it, you know, I was surprised that how upset people were with dry mouths until I became a speaker. Yeah, you you can't speak for a day if your mouth's dry all the time. It's a real problem. You got to drink water constantly, whatever. Uh, so it's a problem for a teacher. Uh, it's a real problem for a teacher. Uh, and yeah, they might you they might surprise you. They might rather be depressed. Um, so anyway, but getting back to a technique, the second thing. Well, okay, let's look at that one, efficacy, which is this balance between symptom relief and uh, side effect. Here's one of my favorite questions out of the MIM. It's called the trapdoor question. Uh, we have to see people, unfortunately, much more rapidly than we probably want. Um, and so if we know the person well, we've got them on an antidepressant, uh, they walk into the door. Just by watching them non-verbally, we get an intuition as to how they're doing. Uh, just watching them walk into the room, we might already be saying, oh, this thing is not kicked in very well, or boy, you know, I need to raise the dose of this probably. And so you take the history and whatever, and it's very apparent this person's depression is not getting very good relief. Uh, you're on a moderate dose of the med. You can boot it up, okay? Um, that looks almost like a no-brainer. Okay. Um, the patient's taking the medication. They've told you in the past they're, they're pretty comfortable with it or whatever. But I always uh, suggest that if that, pa that patient has been giving this med probably a lot of thought before that visit, if they have said to themselves, I am on too much of this drug. By the way, they often call it a drug, not a medicine. I'm on too much of this drug. Um, and you boot it up. I think you're asking for them to not take this medicine or stop taking it. You're probably also asking if they stop it to lie to you because they're going to be hesitant to tell you that they stopped the med. Um, so the way to circumvent that is to not boot a drug until you know exactly what the patient feels about it. And so we call and we call it the trapdoor question because if the person has already decided they don't like they're, they're on too much and you want to raise it, it's like their medication interest is on a trapdoor. It just goes Pew! and boom. They stop the med as soon as they go out the door. So we simply turn to the patient. Every time I try to remember, that, anytime I'm going to raise a med, no matter how well I know the patient, I turn to them and I say, geez, Jim, at this point in time, I'm just curious. Uh, uh, do you think that the medication you're on uh, too little of it, too much of it, or just about the right amount? 
and just watch what they say to him. It's called the trapdoor question. And I'm telling you, if there's even a hesitancy in answering that, you know there's a problem. Uh, because if people are comfortable with it, go, no, I'm fine. Uh, then you say, I'll tell you what, I think we ought to raise it a little bit, and here's why. Um, and so you could circumvent. If, if you ask that question, and sometimes they just say, you know what? I'm actually a little concerned about this med. Well, you know that you can open it. But even if they just hesitate, you could say you look like you're hesitant. And they go, well, you know, I'm really feeling I can't get to sleep at night on this thing. And I really, really got to get to sleep. I'm having trouble at school. Um, then it's opened the entire dialogue to saying, oh, that's a real problem. Uh, and let's talk about that. So I wasn't aware it was causing that much problem. And then you can discuss it, and then you can jointly, collaboratively give a, a recommendation of maybe we should switch meds. Uh, uh, how, how bad at this point is it? Do you want to raise it or not? Uh, and if not, then we really have to switch meds. Uh, maybe we should switch to a therapy uh, other than a med. Uh, but anyway, that trapdoor question is a really useful one uh, in the MIM. Another one that's really interesting is what it means to the patient. That goes into the pros and cons. Uh, this is called testing um, the waters of discontinuation. There was a great paper, and I can't remember who did it. He did it on uh, seizure meds for people who were uh, you know, taking them for epilepsy. Um, and um, he was surprised, and the people who stopped the med, uh, the number of them that were doing well, that were seizure-free. And he said, geez, you've been on this for over a year now and, and you know, or two years. And for last year, you've been seizure-free, but you stopped the med. And I'm just curious. Uh, you must have had a good reason for it. Uh, and the good reason was he discovered that for the people, the, what the med began to mean was a very important con because what it meant to them is, is there, there's something, I'm diseased. Uh, you know, I'm an epileptic. Uh, and he said, uh, and as he started to study it more, and he was sitting there, and he's going, well, how would I feel about this? And what he came to understand was he said, one of the problems with meds when they kick in and put people into remission is that after time, if you're in total remission, you don't know whether you have the original disease or not. And he said, that's really an unpleasant thing. And he said, so this explains, or like I, I actually, I took that and then I said, this explains in psychiatry something that I'd seen that was always puzzling to me. Someone with bipolar disorder, who was almost a, a poster boy for thinking that the uh, lithium was a, a wonder drug for them, um, would be in remission for a year and a half. And then I get a call from an ED and they were in an acute manic episode and had stopped the med when it looked like they were fine with the med when I was seeing them. Uh, and what it was, was they had come to a, a very, in my opinion, very normal human thought. Do I still, do I still have bipolar disorder sure, that yeah. needs this med? Because this is not an innocuous med or if they're got an antipsychotic on top of it or whatever, or Depakote. I mean, these are not innocuous. Um, and so it made sense that he would want to test whether he still had bipolar disorder. So I have learned in the MIM, we teach people this question, testing the waters of discontinuance. And it's hard to remember because 
when the people are doing well, you don't think they'll stop the med, but that's when it's important to remember it. So at any given point after our sort of, you know, six months or whatever, our turn to a patient who's in good remission and our say, hey, Jim, you know what? Your bipolar process is in great uh, remission right now. You're doing great. You know, I find that some of my patients at some point in time, they, they often wonder at this point whether they even need to stay on the lithium or whether the bipolar process is still active. I'm just curious. Have you had thoughts like that or have been wondering that yourself? Uh, and sometimes, you know, they say, well, not really. It's pretty, you told me I would probably need to be on this for a long time, maybe a lifetime. But others will say, well, you know, I've given this some thought, especially if it's longer than six months. Okay. Two years, you know, even in two years, I'll ask that question. Three years, I'll ask that question for sure. Because at some point, the person, if they're, I think, logical is going to wonder, do I still need this thing? Uh, that's very true with major depressive episodes, which, you know, uh, often were recurrent, we all know. Uh, and so, you know, the person, on the other hand, there's some people when, you know, they've done well in the med, you know, they can come off it at some point in time and they don't get another one. Um, so that's another technique that can be taught, testing uh, the waters of discontinuance. So those are the kinds of techniques that are in the MIM. And the other advantage of the MIM uh, we talked about the advantage of the case approach to some of the other techniques for uncovering suicidal ideation. You know, it's big, theoretically, it's big competitor is motivational interviewing, which I'm a huge fan of. I wrote a 40 page in the, in the textbook on psychiatric interviewing, there's a 40 page chapter on motivational interviewing. I love it. Um, but it hasn't been the end all with medication use uh, and effective sta effectively staying on meds. Part of the problem is, is the motivational interviewing is very complex and it's actually a sophisticated style of counseling. Uh, and its originators view it that way uh, as right. something that you don't just take a course in and you're great. Uh, they think you should be supervised in it. And it's really hard to do that in with physicians in primary care or psychiatry or nurses. They don't have a lot of time to be who's going to supervise them on MI. That's just not that uh, about meds. Um, and um, the beauty of the MIM is that it has maybe a hundred techniques. That doesn't mean you learn them all and you use them all. You can use just two of those techniques and it can transform your practice. In fact, what the MIM is doing is it's allowing you to look at all these different tools and then saying, oh, I really like that one. I like that testing the water discontinuation, or I really like that trapdoor question. I'm going to do that with all of my patients before I raise meds. They might just choose a handful of them. And you don't use them all with the same patient in the same time. If you've got seven minutes with someone in a primary care setting, you're not going to use five MIM questions. But just one of them, that trapdoor question, could be the whole ball game as to whether that person's CHF gets worse or better. Because if you suggest raising that uh, med for CHF, and they think they're on too much of it, and you just boot it up quick, and it happens quick in primary care because people are moving so fast, it's harder to pick up on the person's hesitancy. Uh, you'll be getting a call that their CHF is worse in about a month because they will stop that other drug. The other thing that happens that's scary in medicine is that people uh, uh, don't they don't want to take the med, but they it's important to them to look like they're doing a good job because they really respect the clinician. Um, and so they don't tell the clinician they didn't boot the med the way they said. And when they come back in and they're not much better, the clinician, if they're not much better, will look at it and go, oh, we ought to raise it again. 
because they thought they raised it the last time. It's been two months. It should have shown its effect. The person's still depressed. We'll raise it again because we're not even near the top. Uh, that can be just a vicious cycle uh, to a point where it actually can damage a really good therapeutic alliance because the patient it's not that they're forced to lie, but the, the awkwardness of letting down this person who is their healer and they respect will force them to continue to lie. Now, coming in to see the person and have to lie is a problem. That's not something that a person with a good superego likes doing. Uh, and the next thing you know, oh, Mrs. Thompson called in. She can't make it today. Uh, and you just say, okay, well, reschedule her for next week. Well, next week, Mrs. Thompson can't make it today. And then you never hear from Mrs. Thompson again. And it's all happened from the breakdown of that therapeutic alliance because they weren't on the same page. Uh, the physician thought they were using the med in a certain way. The patient was uncomfortable with that med being used that way, and no one was talking about it. Does that stuff make sense? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, Aaron, did you have more questions? I was really interested when I was reading about the training of all these techniques. You know, um, both Tosha and I will do training and supervision and things like that. So, uh, you know, about the role plays of the repeated role plays of feedback, making it fun kind of thing. Yeah, a couple of different things. One, first of all, you can go on our website and the uh, under clinician resources. There's a set of articles uh, about training. So there's a thing called macro training we developed. There's a thing called scripted group role playing we developed. Um, Facilix, uh, I believe we have the article on the facility. That's the study of how to structure interviews and train people to sensitively structure so that it's a conversation. You know, I can't emphasize enough that in our opinion, and this is just our opinion, but a good interview should feel like a conversation. Now, interestingly, sometimes I once had someone say, I prefer calling them clinical conversations. And at first I was a little peeling. And I thought, I said, you know, I, I, I'm not fully comfortable with that because it's not the same as a conversation. There's different goals uh, right. in, in an interview. There's different roles for the two people. It's not a conversation, but it should feel like a conversation. That I truly And so to me, the ideal is if you see a clinician for the first time, when they go home and their partner says, you know, what do you think of Dr. Shea? What you want to hear that person say to their partner is, uh, you know what? That was one of the best conversations I've ever had with a physician. And he's the first damn physician who ever lived to me, uh, listened to me. Um, and that's really a part. Oh, I know, Tosha, one, one other thing was the med sensitivity question. Um, yes, that, that one I wanted to talk about. And I wanted to talk about your experience as a resident when you were struggling with paranoid patients. Too. Oh, yeah, right. First of all, going back to you, Aaron. So, yeah, there's a lot about um, educational things. And by the way, one of the things that we're excited about the, the uh, online courses is we think we've made innovations in online training. And uh, for instance, one of the things we're doing is in interviewing, the trick is consolidation, consolidation, consolidation. So one of the things we've done, which is just following uh, you know, research and in, in interviewing uh, and, and training and psychotherapy, which is to appeal to different uh, um, ways of learning. So all techniques are introduced first through reading so that the person can actually 
consolidate immediately. I didn't understand that. You reread the paragraph. Also, if the reading is exciting, it, it, it's compelling. It gets people's interest in. Then it's didactically taught. So they watch me teaching, uh, literally teaching the material. I teach the same material, but I'm putting a little bit of emphasis on different things. I might be adding some small things, but it's consolidating it. Consol then I demonstrate it with a client. And then I show on the tape why I did what I did. And then one of the, and to, to us, the one true innovation is how we handle questions and annotated answers. Um, I've often found annotated answers to be sort of Mickey Mouse. It's like, well, if you get it right, just go on. If you got it wrong, here's the annotated answer. And usually they're just a, a sentence or two. You know, it should have been blah, blah, blah. We've done it entirely different on these courses. At the end of each module, which is very small, there's a question uh, that's a multiple. It has uh, like A, B, A, B, and C, A, D, none of the above. So there's five true false. We tell people, whether you get each of these true falses right or wrong, read the annotated answers. And these annotated answers are literally very detailed consolidation. And we reconsolidate. We tell exactly why it was right, exactly why it was wrong. And we reconsolidate it again. So um, if you're interested in learning about the, the innovations we're doing in interviewing, you can find that on that web and also in the appendix of the psychiatric interviewing book. Those, uh, there's a thing on designing uh, uh, interviewing training programs in the appendix of that book for, out of the psychiatric clinics of North America. So I have to get going pretty soon, yes. but Sean, I wanted to, if you have if you could just quickly cover that sensitivity question, charging the talisman, and then your <laughs> residency experience um, and how you struggle okay. with talking to paranoid patients. I oh, yeah. Three right, right, minutes right, or right. less. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> wow. So what was the it's a challenge. One? Oh, the me okay. The med sensitivity question. Uh, when taking a uh, meeting a patient for the first time, uh, when I take their med history, I like to just ask them, do you think you're particularly sensitive to meds? Uh, if they tell me yes or ask, I ask why, that's important to find out. They might have a liver that functions differently than other people's livers, okay? But if I find that they just are a person who's hyper, they, they pay too much attention to stuff and they're just getting normal uh, side effects, uh, I used to correct them and say, oh, you know what? Actually, those are just pretty normal side effects. So you're really not sensitive. That's good news for us. because I've discovered that that was really oppositional. You know, I asked the patient a question, are you sensitive? They said yes. I said, no, you're not. <laughs> now I've changed it. I just note that down and whether I agree with it or not. When I'm writing the script, or you can do this if you're typing it in. We were talking about there's different things now. Sometimes scripts aren't done until sometimes they're done by the MA. Okay. So you're not even doing it. But if you're handing the person a piece of paper, um, I like to turn to the person, or if you're going to type the script in front of them, okay, I'll literally start typing or start writing uh, and I'll stop. And I turn to them, I make a pointed thing. I turn to them and I say, you know what, Mrs. Thompson, um, because of your sensitivity to meds, if it's okay with you, I'd like to start this at one half the starting dose. So I don't want to start this the way it's usually started with people. I'd like to start it even smaller. That will give your body a chance to see how it feels. You can let me know, and then we can move the bed up uh, the next time if you'd like. Um uh, 
Very powerful tool. And that's the kind of thing when they go back to their partners saying, that's the first damn doctor who ever listened to me. Uh, mm -hmm. The second one, oh, the talisman quest. Well, okay. This is a, and this is a, this is a little bit different now because so much is done digitally. Um, but like I said, even if the script is done by the MA, I still think that a prescriber is smart to write out something about the med to someone. It, basic directions. You know, you're going to take it twice a day. Mm -hmm. Here's the name of the med. Okay. Say so, uh, now, obviously they should get even better education by someone else. But the bottom line is I like to do that as the physician because you can do this and you can turn to the patient. And yeah, I used to do this with a, a handwritten script. Um, so you'd write the script and then you'd hand it to them. And then when you, their hand touches the paper, you don't let go of it. You hold it for a second, and that means you're going to be very close to the patient or turn to the patient and say, you know what, Aaron? I got a really good feeling about this medication. I really think it's going to help you. I call that charging the talisman. Uh, why would you not want to enhance a placebo effect? But also, I think one of the things that uh, Tosha, you liked was the idea that actually when it was done before, where we originally got this coin, charging the talisman came from an anthropological thing. Because when we really were doing scripts, uh, if an anthropologist looked at the script and was asked, what's this thing mean? Well, if you, the anthropologist, after they watched the interaction, if they didn't know your culture, they watched the interaction, they go, oh, I know exactly what you're doing. Uh, you're handing them a talisman. Uh, you're handing them, you're writing on a piece of paper that only the healers in this culture are allowed to use. Nobody else can even get that piece of paper. You're using a language that only the healers know. That's SIG. That's not English. That's Latin. B-I-D. That's not English. That's Latin for twice a day. So you are a healer that has got a special piece of paper that you've etched in a healer's language and you're handling them. So that med will work not only hopefully because it's a good med biologically, but boy, you're handling that person a powerful talisman. What was the final one? The your experience as a resident. Oh, okay. Uh, this is talking about struggling yeah, with, I know. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, this is training people that um, you know, the the first like three or four hundred pages of my book are about how to engage people, facilics being a big thing. But one of the things that we we like to think we've made a contribution to the field is the idea of the valence of empathy. Meaning that when we say an empathic statement, there's a couple continuums you can look at. And the continuum, the, the low point on the continuum means the empathic statement is likely to do it, but not very powerfully. At the high end of the continuum, high valence, it means the, the empathic statement is very likely to be extremely powerful. But if it can be very powerful, it can also be very problematic. Okay. And a lot of people don't understand that empathic statements can be problematic. So a perfect example, one of the continuums is called the valence of int intuition uh, uh, as far as empathy. That means that I'm listening to the person talk. They've told me a bunch of things. I intuit what they're feeling from it. Uh, and if you do that, it's often very engaging for people. So somebody tells you, yeah, at work, my boss is a real asshole. All the other colleagues, we all hate his guts. We had a team meeting the other day. I got the guts up to raise some of the problems. And I couldn't believe it. None of the other stuff, the staff backed me up. It just threw me under the bus. Uh, and now they're barely talking to me. And I hate the whole thing. I hate work. I hate going to work. Okay, a really intuitive interviewer might sit there and go, boy, what a, an incredibly lonely place you're in right now. And they're, the person will go, you got it. It's horrible. Okay. But as Tosha and I were talking about, 
You do that with a person who's actively paranoid. In other words, you read into their thoughts. It's exactly what the paranoid defenses are built to stop. They hate it. No, I can't say they always hate it, but they frequently hate it. Uh, and you know they they don't like it. And perhaps that's the better term. They don't like it um, because they often dis dis uh, disavow it. So you say, "Boy, it sounds like a really lonely place you're in now." And the person with paranoia will go, "I didn't say it was lonely. I said they wouldn't back me up." Then what happens is is that a naturally gifted uh, empathic interviewer will recognize, "Wow, I'm losing this guy." So they'll use another intuitive empathic statement about two minutes later, <laughs> and the guy will disavow it again. I'm actually in the ED. I once saw a dyad where it almost came to a standstill. Uh, and it's because, and the guy was a wonderfully empathic interviewer. Uh, you know, most patients love this guy. But not this guy who was actively paranoid. He couldn't stand him. Um, now, the reason I knew that is, is that I had problems as a resident because I think I was fairly empathic and a good, for my age, a good interview, I'd like to think. And, um, but I had problems with because I had not been around paranoid uh, process. Uh, fortunately, I did not have anyone in my family or a friend. And, um, and I had all sorts of problems like this. And finally, a supervisor said, you know, do you know what happened in that room? I said, no. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I know. Nothing good. And he said, well, he said, you know, you're usually really good with patients. He said, and that's your problem. And I was really baffled. Then he explained all this. And he said, you know, you were using, he didn't call that the valence of empathy, but he said, you know, you were very intuitive with that guy, which really invaded him. Uh, and I said, but the other thing you really need to know, Sean, is you talk fast. And he says, you're, uh, you make really direct contact with people and you gesture all over the place. And he said, so I'd like to think you're aware of this about yourself, but you definitely do this stuff more than other people. You're above the norm. Okay. And he said, so that's okay with most patients, not with people with paranoia. And he said, so what you really need to do is every patient that you're walking into that you don't know who they are, tone everything down. Uh, don't gesture so much. Don't talk so loud. Don't talk so fast. Just sit meet them pleasantly, make them feel comfortable, start to take their history. You're going to feel very quickly whether they have uh, you know, paranoid process or not, in which case, then keep doing that. Uh, otherwise, let your personality start to show through more and more. They're appreciated. You have a great personality. It's very therapeutic. Uh, said Now, when you really get sophisticated about interviewing, well, that's already sophisticated, but a fascinating thing is to, when you turn to people and like our turn to a resident and our say, now, let me ask you something. Let's say that you're meeting someone for the very first time in ED and you use one of these uh, high valence intuitive empathic statements and the guy disavows it. Now, you know nothing about this patient. Uh, they've just walked in. You know nothing about that. What is that potentially telling you about the patient? And you hope the resident clicks and goes, they might be paranoid. I said, you got it. Uh, so at that point in time, it's already one guiding you on what to do in the interview. Be careful, but hunt for paranoia uh, because most people don't disavow intuitive empathic statements unless they're wrong, you know, dead wrong. 
Okay. Uh, so what's fascinating is by watching how a client responds to a particular interviewing technique, you can actually even get diagnostic clues. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sean. Yeah, and the way, yeah, the way you explained it in the book too, I really liked how you described the pathology of the person suffering from paranoia is they don't want to feel that someone is in their head reading right. their mind or so, you know, getting close to them. Oh, and, sure. and that is where the, the quick reaction or the, the response comes from to disavow, as you say, and to reject yeah. someone trying to, trying to use their empathy to uh, establish that rapport, make that connection right. and get closer. But um, yeah, just backfires in the paranoid patient. That well, That's so great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, the other thing about it is uh, in the, in that particular book too, is that, you know, there's seven and a half, but you might not know this, Aaron, the book has, you know, it come, the hardback comes with a digital book, which is much better than the Kindle. I mean, much better. And um, But the other thing is we took two things for people to remember about the book. To make it uh, very uh, as cheap as we could possibly make it, and it's a wonderfully low-cost book, okay? Um, we took the last five chapters of the book, literally the five, they're part of the book, and moved them into the digital appendix. That made the book significantly shorter, so it was cheaper for them to manufacture. So there's five. For instance, the chapter on the medication interest is in the appendix. The chapter on cultural um, adaptive interviewing is in the appendix. Not because they're not important. It's just because we wanted to keep the book so people could afford it. Uh, but so literally that appendix has the last, It's uh, the section's called special topics and uh, difficult topics in clinical interviewing. Um, so, but the other thing is, has seven and a half hours of streaming video. Um, and so one of the reasons that's of, of value is, is that I really feel that um, it helps people to be able to model. And so seeing some of the techniques that I've been describing, for instance, in that case approach and watching it, uh, I, I have a whole section demonstrating when uh, different levels of uh, empathy or on the valence scales are being used. Um, so we really think that that can really help educationally in textbooks is to have streaming video and to have uh, and not have it just uh, at the end of a chapter, try to integrate it into the book. Um, so that people see it close to where they just read it. Um, so anyway, I think that's an important tool in uh, hopefully educational writing. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. On this episode, we talked about clinical interviewing strategies, part two, with our co uh, special guest, Dr. Sean Christopher Shea. Thank you to our co-hosts, Drs. Tosha Yamaguchi and Al Atkins. If you would like to learn about Dr. Shea's books and training that's available, navigate to suicideassessment.com. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write to us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. You can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform, as well as enjoy an extended version of the show. And if you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. Our production assistant is Yasmin Dakama. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched.